Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a fan of the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head on over to patreon.com slash smugfilm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards for you if you donate to the show. Just $1 a month gets you access to a library of over 20 bonus mini-episodes of the Smug Film Podcast. These mini-episodes will never be on iTunes or anywhere else. The only way to get them is by donating through Patreon. And that's not all. You also get streaming copies of my two feature films, Shredder and Rehearsals. All that for just a dollar a month. If you donate $5 a month, you get all that. Plus, we'll do a plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Your Twitter handle, your website, your whatever. If you donate $10 a month, we'll plug whatever you want on every single episode of the show. It's an incredible deal. They're all incredible deals. So once again, that's patreon.com slash smugfilm, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today, one-on-one, is John D'Amico. Yo. We are talking today about something that's a little near and dear to our heart, I guess. Oh, yeah. This is very much our wheelhouses. And what we're talking about are surprisingly good unsung horror sequels. Right. This is distinct from horror sequels that everybody knows are good. So we're not talking about Bride of Frankenstein. We're not talking about Evil Dead 2. We're talking about surprisingly good unsung horror sequels. No Dawn of the Dead, not even Day of the Dead. This is for SGUHs. This is the SCUHs. Hashtag SCUH. SGUHs. Surprisingly good unsung horror sequels. So please... After you listen to this, please hashtag us your favorites. Do hashtag S-G-U-H-S, SCUS. Hashtag SCUS, and the more you, the better. Yeah. The more unsung. We don't. I don't want to hear how Day of the Dead is really good. We all know it. We're talking about the U's, the G's, the SCUS. Yeah, the really... Unsung. We want that U to be capital. We want yeah. that... We want an emphasis on unsung... Because we got some definitely unsung picks. It's Scud Day at Smug House. It's Scud Day. And uh, I guess I'll start it off with Child's Play 2, which I know that we both enjoy. Yeah. Yes. Because Child's Play 1, it has good things going for it, but it never really feels as uh, emotional as it could be. Because you got you got stuff like the Twilight Zone episode with the talking Tina, where there's there's an emotional component. You can go places emotionally with dolls. You got that movie Magic with uh, your boy uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Right, my boy Magic Johnson. There's definite places you can go with the talking doll that it just gets real emotional and creepy and strange. And that sequel, that Child's Play 2, really actually goes there. And it's it's got some great shots in it. It's got a good vibe. Is it the greatest thing ever? No, but it improves upon the first. And then after that, this fucking series just goes to shit. It was like this shining beacon of, of hope. And then three is horrible. And I don't even fuck with like the Cursa's, Chucky's and Bride of Chucky's. It's, that's like a totally different thing. I, think. I like the one where Red Man got gutted under the glass table. He did? Yeah, that was pretty good. Maybe I'll have to check that out. And he had to watch it and he was like, ah, my guts. Oh, uh, that sounds good. It was all right, yeah. Yeah, I see, I haven't even seen any of those. I'm totally judging those, but they feel very separate from they're, the... They're very separate, yeah. yeah they're, they're almost like a, a reaction to the first ones, you know? Mm. They're they're like a parody second series. Well, that second uh, Child's Play, you got uh, that Toy Factory thing at the end. You got you got great moments in it, I just it wish... It's real body horror. Yeah. That, that bit. You know, there's a lot of, like flesh-colored liquids, which are really upsetting on film, I think. They are. Flesh-colored liquids. Yeah. It's like a tough uh, one to get past. It's like in Aliens, where he gets like, uh, you know, doesn't he get like sliced in half at the end, the uh, android dude? Yeah, and all the white goo is coming out. Yeah, the white goo, that's more gory to me than like if it was just blood, I feel like. There's something unnatural and unnerving about it. It just takes it to a, a height. Yeah, Child's Play gets that a little bit, the second one with that the flesh goo mm. just like 
the, the texture of it, that like kind of thick. Aren't they like, doesn't he get like jacked up with it too? Like, doesn't he get it like in him? I guess. Yeah. It, or does he just get coated with it? I remember it like, I remember having to think about being injected with flesh colored goo. Mm. But I don't know if that's just a separate life I've been living from the film. <laughs> well, oh, if, and he gets injected with the eyes too. Yeah. The little eye stitcher. Going along with this, uh, this, this flesh colored goo thing, I do have to then mention uh, Phantasm 2 which I think is better than the first one. I like the first one a lot. I just think two is better. You got a lot of Remember when colored Frank Santa stuff. Padres smoked you for liking the first Phantasm? Yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> Go back and listen to that Frank Santa Padre uh, episode where we talk about uh, some 70s movies. And man, yeah, he smoked me on that. He, he, he said, bless your heart, right? Yeah, 1979 episode. Yeah, yeah he smoked him. He's smoked like, him good. I brought up Phantasm. He's like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> But in Phantasm 2, you got like yellow blood and shit. That's yeah. that's all good. And uh, Phantasm 2 is real good. I don't like 3, 4. I haven't seen 5 yet. I don't think anybody has. I think it comes out like this week. But uh, Phantasm 2 is real good. Phantasm? Uh, it should be. I think it's called Ravager. Phantasm Ravager or something. Stupid. I think 4 was Oblivion. And then now it's... I hate these generic... There's always Oblivion. Oblivion's in there somewhere or another yeah. along the way. Okay, so you give me some of yours now. I went two in a row. All right, let me give you one of the scuyest ska I got. Pardon? <laughs> one of the scuyest ska. Scuggiest Scuggiest ska. Okay. Mimic 3, Ooh. Sentinel, directed by my dude uh, J.T. Petty, who also directed that movie Sandman, but it's spelled S-N-M, S- man. S-N-Man, or yeah. however it is. S-Ampersand Man. <laughs> Uh, which is, that one's great. That's about a... Um, Sampersand Man. Sampersand Man is about uh, <laughs> like a guy who's interviewing all these horror filmmakers and it turns out one of them is a real snuff filmmaker and it blends fact and fiction. It's really good. But it's not a ska because there's no first one. If they made a second one, I would probably be talking about it. But Mimic 3 Sentinel, one of his earlier films, is a fantastic sequel to... Uh, Guillermo del Toro's movie, Mimic, which is still my favorite del Toro movie, I think, mm. except for Crimson Peak. Yeah, Mimic 3 is really, really good. It's like 75 minutes long, which nice. is the secret to, to its success. But um, it's high concept in a way that really, really works. It's essentially a remake of Rear Window, but instead of the neighbor being a murderer, it's the giant cockroach bugs from the first Mimic. Oh, God, that sounds good. Yeah, and it's this guy who's like a germaphobe, and he can't leave his apartment, so he's sitting in his bubble. He's a bubble boy, and he's watching the uh, giant roaches like take people from the neighborhood. <laughs> and it's just fantastic. It's so fun and so quirky, like late '90s good horror. And the characters are really well sketched. They're like, there's this thing with him and his sister, and this other guy who likes her, and it's all like it's really like it's a good um, comic dramatic indie film on top of being a really fun rear window knockoff and then it escalates really well it goes towards the end from rear window to uh wait until dark the audrey hepburn movie ah yeah it really uh it's a fun one it's a really good um it's you know what it is it's like what i wish the tremor sequels were like right it's it's the tone you always want for those ones but never get uh so yeah that's that's a big pick for me do another one because i did too I can do another one for you. Let's kick it back. So the king of like horror sequels everybody knows is super good is Bride of Frankenstein, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody Which is praised. I think even on like Rotten Tomatoes, it's got like 90% or something. It's got people, like 99. Yeah, I, people, I don't think there's been a bad review of Bride of Frankenstein since 1935. Yeah. And rightfully so. It's, you know, it's a masterpiece. Uh, the original Frankenstein's a masterpiece. Um, they were both James Whale just at the top of his game going all out, going nuts. But a lot of people stop there. I think because that's the last James Whale movie. And James Whale is a hard one to um, to follow. But the third Frankenstein movie from 1939, Son of Frankenstein, is, uh, for my money, as good as Bride of Frankenstein and almost as good as the original Frankenstein. It's directed by Roland Lee, who did that movie uh, Zoo in Budapest that I talked about on the 33 episode. Mm. I love Zoo in Budapest. It's this like really lyrical uh, gorgeous fantasy almost. Uh, and it's written by this guy, Willis Cooper, who is a tremendous horror radio writer. And it's one of Cooper's only horror films. 
And um, it's really exciting because he's one of my favorite uh, radio guys. I think he he was one of the great writers of the form. And he's really firing on all cylinders here. It's very funny. It's beautifully shot. It's all Art Deco. So it's this mashup of the um, the like castle gothic look of the first two Frankensteins with this sort of more modernized Art Deco look mm. of something like, say, the Black Cat or the 50s sci-fi horror movies. And Basil Rathbone is the son of Frankenstein in it. And he runs across uh, Bella Lugosi, who... And this is the first movie where the hunchback is called Igor. Uh, is playing Igor. Oh, wow. He's actually Fritz in the first movie, and there's no such character in the second right, one. Right, right. So the whole idea of the hunchback Igor came from Son of Frankenstein, as well as the bit in... Uh, in Young Frankenstein, the Mel Brooks one with the inspector with the one wooden arm, mm. that came from Son of Frankenstein. And it's played for comedy in this movie as well, hmm. which is a very funny movie. Beautifully shot, very elegant, very funny, and really uh, a great addition to uh, to that series, making it, for my money, those that one, two, three is probably the greatest triple punch in the history of horror. Uh, they're all just flawless those first three and yeah a lot of people miss son of frankenstein because it's not james whale but uh don't make that mistake uh dive into it it's really it's a wonderful thing the universal horror movies in general i feel like the sequels you can get a lot of interesting stuff out of them they um they made so many of them and they made them at such low cost that they tried out weirder ideas than they do in most horror movies and most movies in general you get stuff that really you would almost only ever see in like episodic television. That sounds like what happened with Mimic 3. I mean, it was yeah, a nice yeah. 75 minute strange idea. Yeah, it was a bit like that. Yeah. So, for example, uh, one of the later Invisible Man movies, uh, the Invisible Man, Invisible Agent, it was called right. Invisible Agent. He's, it was during World War II. So the Invisible Man gets turned into a spy and they like parachute him into France during the war. <laughs> and it's just this really great like wacky idea that they run with for like 75 minutes and see what they can get out of it. Um, and Dracula, the second Dracula, Dracula, which I think is the worst of the, the mainstream universal horror movies. The second one, Dracula's daughter, is this tremendous um, like lesbian tinged, really eerie vampire mystery. And um, in a lot of ways, it's better than the first because it cares a little more about the characters and very little of it has turned up in any other movie. So the whole vibe of it and the whole premise of it and the feel of it is still about as fresh as it was in 36. Mm. It's really interesting. And I think the most interesting of the Universal Horror sequels, and I've written about them and spoken about them before at great length, are the sequels to the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon movies. Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, and The Creature Walks Among Us, which the three of them uh, follow each other basically as soon as one ends, the next picks up. And they uh, just trace this like sad downward spiral of this monster that they keep trying to cage, who's really just this sad, lonely last of his kind. Uh, so the second one, he's trapped in essentially SeaWorld and they're just doing experiments on him the whole time and he breaks out. And the third one, The Creature Walks Among Us, there's a big fire in the end of the second one, and he runs through the Everglades while they're like a blaze to escape the place. So the third one picks off right where that left off, and the the Gill Man's all burnt up. Mm. So what they do is they give him reconstructive facial surgery, and they have to like take away his gills and like make him like a person. Fuck. Yeah, and it's just about this guy who used to be like a water monster who now like can't return to the water. And it's really good, and it's really sad, and it has the same ending as the the four hundred blows. Right, he escapes the um he he escapes the lab, and he runs to the edge of the edge of the waterline, and he stops at the waterline and looks out at the beach and knows he can't go in because he doesn't have gills anymore. And it ends with like just that still shot of the gill man standing on the edge of the water, exactly the way we live at Antoine Doniel at the end of four hundred blows. <laughs> So there's a lot going on in those later Universal movies. They're, there's a, they're a treasure trove, I think, of scuzz. How about the uh, Hammer stuff? Is there any like weird oddball 
Hammer sequels that are pretty good? Oh, Hammer stuff, I I don't know as well as the Universal ones. So still every year I uncover two or three more that are, that are surprisingly scuzz. Mm. But uh, as usual, the Frankenstein ones are my favorite. There's a path in the middle Frankenstein ones that's really interesting. Because the difference between the Universal Frankenstein movies in the 1930s and the British Hammer ones in the 1950s and 60s is that the Universal ones, the American ones that everybody know, follow the monster from movie to movie. The Hammer ones don't do that. They kill the monster basically at the end of every movie, Mm. and they follow Dr. Frankenstein trying to build another one. So you have almost like the prototype for Walter White through the course of them. You have this guy at the beginning who's a sort of like marginalized, unsung scientific genius who's just trying to give something to the world. And then by the fifth movie, which is my favorite of them, Frankenstein must be destroyed, meaning in this case, Dr. Frankenstein must be destroyed. He's a full-on villain, and you're following the people trying to stop him. It's really like an interesting arc. You don't see a lot in horror, this full Yeah, I think you just got Breaking Bad people to watch Hammer Horror. They should. Uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed, I think, is the best of the lot. It's very tense. It's, um, it was 1968, which was a great year for film and a great year for horror. Uh, and it just goes for it in that very 68 fashion. So there's um, there's this great part where he like buries a body in the uh, in his courtyard. And then he comes back like 20 minutes later in the course of the film, 20 minutes later. And there's a pipe burst in the courtyard mm. and the, the plumbers are coming and he has to move the body. And it's very Hitchcock. It's really. Yeah, uh, that's very British. Too. Yeah, it's a great it's a great bit of uh, comedy horror. I know a lot of people who really like Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which I think is the fourth movie in that series. Also a tremendous movie. And Frankenstein Created Woman, also a tremendous film. But for my money, the great scuzz of the uh, Hammer stuff is Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Nice. Hashtag scuzz. Hashtag scuzz. So what else you got? Well, before we go uh, contemporary again, we should talk uh, about uh, Curse of the Cat People, which is really one of the best horror sequels of all time. Goes to the max. Yeah, that's uh, and we we just uh, we just got that uh, that Criterion Blu-ray, you know, Cat People, but no no Curse of the Cat People on there, which was really disappointing for me because the previous release of Cat People on DVD, it had both on there. Right, that was a tradi- the terrific Universal release, right? Yeah. They, uh, yeah, they, they really did Val Luton right. They I'd did like, a whole big uh, Val yeah. Luton set, for those of you who don't know, which is, I guess it's technically out of print, but you can still kind of get it for a good price. I think it's like 50 or $60, but it's worth it. Here's how good it was. I'm worried that Criterion has the rights to them now because I don't want that one to go away. Yeah. Like when you're worried about Criterion having your movie, that's when you know you did a really good job with your DVDs. Well, I'm worried they're going to just bring them out like kind of one by one if yeah. they do, because... I don't know. It just feels like Curse of the Cat People is such a great companion. I can't imagine them not being on the same disc or at least the same set. They elevate both of each other, which is really interesting because they're essentially unrelated films. Mm -hmm. And um, for those of you who don't know, the story of Curse of the Cat People and the story of Val Luton in general is really fascinating. He was a producer for uh, RKO, right? Yeah. Yeah, for RKO doing their... Uh, low-budget horror movies in the 40s. And the deal RKO had with him, which is the great greatest deal I think anybody's ever gotten, and I wish like Asylum or Sci-Fi Channel would do this oh, with yeah. somebody, was they would provide a title and they would provide a poster. And as long as he gave them enough lurid stuff to make a trailer, he could make whatever movie he wanted. Or a certain amount of money for under 250000 I think yeah. it was. Yeah, he had a budget cap and he could make anything for that that amount of money. Yeah. So he made this movie Cat People because they gave him Cat People. And it's a tremendous movie. And there's a great remake of it, too, in the 80s. That's also great. It's about this woman who's afraid she's becoming essentially a werewolf, but like a panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's these great, uh, really classy, very still, quiet scares. Like, it really mounts up on you. Very strange scares that have been since ripped off. Like, there's one with a bus that yeah. I won't reveal, but... You've seen that other times. Never as well. Never as well. And it all comes from from that moment in Cat People. And a lot of scares where like you're seeing stuff with shadows that like yeah. you just don't see done as well. In fact, it follows Bard a lot from the uh, pool sequence in mm-hmm. Cat People, which I never thought of till now, but that that the setting 
of that lonely pool where there's something that you can kind of see, but not everybody can see is sort of indebted to, to cat people. But anyway, so cat people was a huge hit. And then he got what happened to James Whale with Bride of Frankenstein, where they said, you're doing another one of these. We don't care. Do another one. And he did not, like James Whale, did not want to make another movie like that. Mm -hmm. He didn't even really want to make another horror movie. He wanted to make a fantasy movie. So what did he do? Curse of the Cat People, which obviously a a supplied title, but uh, he made this very beautiful kind of, I guess, Guillermo del Toro-esque almost tale. Harper Lee-esque almost. Yeah, about a, a young girl interacting with a ghost and the the sort of angst it brings the family because it's bringing out kind of long buried uh, things that like the parents thought that they were over. And it's just this girl insisting that she's, she's having these conversations with a ghost and uh, them just thinking she's full of shit. It's very, yeah, it's very early uh, Del Toro. It's very uh, Devil's Backbone, very uh, Pond's Labyrinth, very Spirit of the Beehive. Yeah. Uh, but it also has this really like, Shirley Jackson, Harper Lee, kind of like young woman in America, young girl in America feel that's rare in films. It's it's pretty common, I think, in literature, but you have to kind of dive for that sort of expose on like young girlhood in American cinema. Mm. Uh, and, And especially when it's cut through with this sort of eeriness, not scariness the way Cat People was, just eeriness, just this sense of being misled about the way the rules in the world work almost. Yeah. Uh, and it's just beautiful footage in that film. Too. And it's great too, because the, the parents are so convinced that, uh, you know, what's happening is impossible. And yeah. That it, it that it end up, ends up fucking up the kid because like. Yeah. She has this sense of not being heard. Yeah. Which is this great, you know, like the universal story of being a kid. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just, there's so much in it. It's so packed with, with emotion, which is such a rare thing for, um, for horror. And it's certainly standalone. Like you can, technically you can watch it without seeing the first one, but as you said, they kind of, they help each other. They add certain little things. You know, if you watch the second one, then you go back and watch the first one again, or if you, you know, watch the first one and then the second, like they just keep playing off of each What's other. What's interesting is if you like put a gun to my head, I couldn't even tell you why or how. Yeah. It's just like the well, because idea. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like what happens with Truffaut where you got a young person and then an older person. And yeah, continues. maybe it's that. It yeah. feels like a, like an unbroken, like a time loop almost because you're seeing. Yeah. Or like the Apu trilogy. Yeah. You're seeing a, a, an adult woman who's plagued by all this stuff. And then you're seeing a young girl who's plagued by all this stuff. And you know, kind of at the end of Curse of the Cat People, that her future is is kind of similar to that first woman. So yeah. it, it just keep it's like a cycle that just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, you're given that sort of, um, that, that sort of predestination. Yeah. Yeah, just beautiful filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we could... We got to be careful because we could spend this whole fucking time talking about Curse of the Cat People. I mean, I'm <laughs> tempted to just drop everything on our list. I know. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to go to some more uh, contemporary stuff. So uh, see you soon. And now, Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old-timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature, surviving in the wilderness, full-grown by now. Stalking. Stealing what he needs, living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him, right in this area. The girl that survived that night at Camp Blood, that. Friday the 13th. She claimed she saw him. She disappeared two months later vanished blood was everywhere no one knows what happened to her legend has it that jason saw his mother beheaded that night then he took his revenge a revenge he continued to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again and by now i guess you all know we're the first to return here five years five long years he's been dormant and he's hungry jason's out there watching always on the prowl for intruders. 
Ready to kill. Ready to devour. Thirsty for young blood. This has been a robot reenactment. Now, back to the show. Hello, Smug Film fans. Leave us a question or a comment for Smug Film to play on the show by calling the following voicemail number. 718-395-9711 Once again, that's 718-395-9711 We look forward to hearing from you, you lovely, lovely people. Hello, I am the Hunky Smug Film Sponsor Plug Man. I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the Smug Film Podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter, he's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby, Slow, on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons, Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here at Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. Alright, welcome back to our skugs. Fest. Skugs Fest 2016. 16 Skugs. And going back into more contemporary stuff, I think we should uh, venture into Friday the 13th territory because, Gee, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Since uh, the last episode, if you guys listened to it when I was talking about watching the Friday the 13th movies, I'd only seen the first two uh, when I recorded that with Brad. Since then, I've seen three and four, which I like as well. There are, these are good movies. Now, last year when Cody began his quest to watch all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I was like, Cody, those ones are shitty. Just watch the Friday the 13th instead because they're better. Yeah. But I think if you haven't seen either, the Friday the 13th look way shittier. Well, it seems like you're missing out on something. that It seems like everybody's having more fun in the Freddy yeah. territory. Like that, that camp seems more fun. The Friday the 13th camp seems like the monotonous, boring. Yeah, just camp a trudge of, of a big man with a machete. Yeah, and that's not what? the case at all. Yeah. All four of these have been very distinct films, all enjoyable in their own way. Whereas the fucking Freddies, even though like the opportunities seem endless in a Nightmare on Elm Street film because of the dream aspect, it means you can go and do anything. You can do all sorts of different things. They they're so samey at a certain point. Yeah. I with mean, the exception of the sixth one, they experiment with form and the second, way more. The second the, one does experiment a little yeah. bit, but isn't necessarily a good film per se. No, but God, that is a discussable film. <laughs> the uh, the the gay porn Certainly. Freddy sequel. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that one, miles yeah. to talk about with it. But yeah, with the exception of two and six. And I like four. I, I think four is pretty damn good. That's yeah. my favorite of the, uh, the Freddy sequels, I guess. But man, the... Jasons are so much better. Well, two, I think, is one of my favorite slashers because two, um, it's before, if you don't know, he doesn't get the hockey mask until three. Right. Which three is its own very interesting movie because it was it was the 3D one and it's the first like campy one. The look of it's very interesting too, because it's uh it's you know, it's scope. Yeah. Whereas like one have two you seen and... it in 3D? I've actually seen it in I red and, red and blue 3D. How was it? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Very like you get every parody of the eighties driving whatever experience when sure. you watch that in that and you're like, this is it. I'm the fucking kid in Zombies Ate My Neighbors right now. <laughs> like I'm every kid on the cover of every one of those kids' magazines about horror at the time. Right. Like it's exactly you're throwing what people, your popcorn yeah, in the air. Yeah. Exactly what people picture slasher movies looked like. Mm. But two, I really like because I think it's it's before he gets that hockey mask, so it's just a giant guy 
with a burlap sack with a single hole in it over his head, mm-hmm. which is still a pretty like fraught image. Definitely. And um, it's the only one that gives you kind of a a base to work with with the the um, last girl lead in it, uh, who's really good. So it's the only one where you're actually you're kind of rooting for the people at the end. I have this thing with horror movies where slasher movies, I believe, are by the the second or third go round in a slasher series. What you're really doing is you're doing a physical comedy act and the nominal protagonist is the straight man and the monster is the comedian. Hmm. So essentially the later Freddy's, the later everything's, it's Abbott and Costello and the, the person in the center of the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, is Bud Abbott. Uh, and one of the only movies to break that mold, I think, in the series, not the only one because we have a big one that breaks it to talk about later, but one of the only ones to break it is Friday the 13th Part 2 because I, like, give a shit about her. At the end, you, like, root for her to win and they shoot her really well. Yeah. They give her a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of emotional weight and a lot of, like, strength and fear mixed in the right proportion. In a very short amount of time. Yeah. Too. We're, we're talking about about probably 10, 15 minutes. Of- Honestly, what I'm talking about when I'm saying I like the movie, now I think about it, it was the last 20 minutes. Yeah. But they're great. It's a genuinely tense uh, encounter with something that still feels like remorseless and you, you're you rooting for the, the person that you're nominally supposed to root for, which is super rare. Yeah. Was that just me or did you come out the same way? No, I that might be my favorite of the the sequels so far, I think. I would put that just above maybe four. And uh I like three. Three's fine. But yeah, I would probably go one, two, four, three, I guess. But they're all so fucking See, good. I don't put one anywhere near two. See, one, I don't know. It's just it's always up there for me, I guess. I actually think I go two and then six which you haven't gotten to yet but Mm -hmm. six is good it's very funny then jason x then freddy versus jason and then one we should talk about freddy versus jason because that's that's really the first one of those guys that i saw that was the first freddy that was the first jason that i ever saw it's the only one i ever saw in theaters it's it's a good movie man freddy versus jason i think we didn't appreciate it enough at the time no way because it's such a trash concept and it was you know the alien versus predator era and you're like, this is, there's no chance here, but it's really pretty good. I don't know. There's something about Freddy in it too, that like, it, he's just better. Like since seeing all the Freddy's. he doesn't have to hold up all yeah. the scary stuff. Well, it's almost it's like, like good cop, bad cop. Yeah. He's got like a, a straight man in Jason. Yeah. It's like. Like when they need somebody to just like kill a shitload of people, like it's Jason in the cornfield. Mm-hmm. And then when they need like some weird cryptic shit it's the slug stuff with freddy yeah so they actually good that slug they actually meld well together the two of them i mean it was it was freddy and jason like it was stallone and schwarzenegger for a while yeah but they they come together well like surprisingly they they're peanut butter and jelly in a certain sense yeah and of course that was something that was intended for so long the um sequel to one of the i'm just gonna blow Friday the 13th, part nine for you. Jason it's okay. goes to hell. It's okay. Because you've had plenty of time. <laughs> the last shot of it is famously Jason's killed. Uh, and they're like, no, he's going to hell. And then there's a like a like a shot of his mask laying on the ground. And then Freddy sticks his hand up through the ground and drags Jason's mask down to hell and laughs. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it was, it was the best part of the movie by far. But ever since then, it was like, all right, so... We kind of committed ourselves. <laughs> we know we got to do it. And that's why then you got like Jason X where they're like, you know, a thousand years in the future or whatever. Right, and they, they have just to put it off. around. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I thought Freddy versus Jason was really solid. He's um, also like, Freddy is scarier in it than he is in the other ones. Like It's this creepy movie. Maybe it's parts. the lighting or something. I don't know. It was like a perfect... Because if, if that was done now, it would have different lighting and I don't yeah. think it would work as well. It was like this perfect moment where like the lighting really suited what they needed to do because they couldn't make it look like a Friday the 13th movie right. and they couldn't make it look like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It had to look like something else. Right. And those are such different lighting schemes. I mean, that's 
like you could show them side by side in a film course and be like, this is high key versus low key right. lighting. Those are diametrically opposed lighting styles. And so they couldn't choose one or one of the two. So they go for a completely new lighting scheme for both of them and they both look great in it. Yeah, it's like a little glossy, but not the way, say, the remakes of them. Yeah, it's like a bluish, darkish, glossy something or other. And it, it just works. It's nice. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's not murky in the way that stuff gets nowadays. Like it's uh Yeah, they don't blow any of the blacks out. Yeah. Which is a trick. I mean, that was a problem they had in the 80s with some of them, too. Mm-hmm. You get to those uh, slasher movies that aren't made with care. Even, I would argue, parts of the first Friday movie. And everything, in, when they go to the woods, is just blown out. And you can't really see. Or it's that murky, like, off-brown. You know what had some good uh, murky dark stuff was the fourth one. There's some stuff yeah. in, the, in the woods at night. There's, like, this moment where this chick gets, like, fully naked and she's going into the water and the lighting is that like, moment is of course in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the lighting is remarkable in in four when she does that, and it's like you can tell they're not working with much as far as what they can technically do with the lighting, but they're yeah. getting the most out of it. Like yeah. they're they're working that budget. Yeah, I mean, I always really like those movies. I'm glad you're liking them too. I'm enjoying them. Man. I think even among slasher people, they're a little unsung. But of course, I mean, they have nothing on the good Halloweens. Uh, a, a good Halloween movie is like a whole nother level. See, you like the Halloweens. I like three. I don't really like Michael Myers that much, but but sell me on two because you, you're a big fan of two, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, my favorite Halloween movie is the first John Carpenter Halloween. I think that's, you know, Elegante. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Rob Zombie movies, which are a hard sell for slasher people, for horror people, I think are really good. I think they do a lot of really interesting things. And Halloween 2, I think, is maybe five minutes of cuts away from being one of the best movies of the decade, any style. It's just so relentlessly logical in what it does. Like, um, they always had that character Loomis in all of them. That was Donald Pleasance in the first series, and then it's Malcolm McDowell in the new series. And Loomis was always, like, a bit off- like, there's a moment in the original Halloween 2 from the 80s where he sees a kid dressed as Michael Myers for Halloween and, like, shoots him and then sets him on fire with, like, a burning ambulance or something. Like, mm. it goes fucking nuts. Uh, but it was always this, like, minor chord through them. And then what Rob Zombie does that's really interesting is he, like, re-examines Loomis as a guy, as, like, a hack writer who's making his career on writing books about Michael Myers. His book's called, like, the reflection of evil or whatever. And it's about like, cause he has that quote about like, I looked in his eyes and all I saw was pure evil. And he's like, you know, he's become that kind of like a trashy true crime writer. So it has these great sequences at the beginning where he's, he's at book signings and, um, and he has to deal with this crowd of people who are like very realistically, like serial killer horror guys who are like kind of off. And it's really interesting because you feel like that's like, it's like the look at like Rob Zombie's worst interactions with his fans because <laughs> they're guys talking to him about like, oh, you know, Michael Myers is awesome, but he didn't have the body count of Ted Bundy and like all this really creepy shit. And he's trying to sell, but at the same time, really freaked out by it. Yeah, It's this great scene. I don't know of any other scene like that in any movie that really captures the ugly side of horror fans. Uh, and then there's this other spectacular stuff in it. Um, they do stuff with the idea of surviving a massacre like that, that I've never seen done better. They keep the same cast basically as the first one, the, the, the people who survived the first one, which is the sheriff, Brad Dwarf, his daughter, Danielle Harris, and then, uh, Lori Strode, the main, main girl, they like live together now. And they're all so fucked up by the first movie that like big sequences of the movie are just Lori in therapy. Mm just trying to get over what happened in the first movie. And they have these like horrible tense dinners where like they're all, they all have post-traumatic stress disorder and just can't connect with each other anymore. And they're all trying. And of course, once the bodies start falling, um, the sheriff's daughter and Lori's best friend played by Danielle Harris is killed because of course she is. And there's the sequence, the way they kill her off is remarkable because she dies and then they just let the camera linger and her father comes home and finds the body. Fuck. Which is something I've never seen in a slasher movie, really. 
and just, and she like died in the shower. So he just breaks down in the bathroom, like sobbing next to this body. And it goes on and on and on. And you're watching it and you're like, this is a fucking, like, I can't believe this is like the movie going on in between the scenes of the other movies. Right. Yeah. And it coaches such real drama out of this very old and very maligned formula. I mean, there's no formula more looked down on than the horror one. Yeah. But it shows that if you just take it seriously as an idea. Even the genre itself looks down on it because you yes. got like Scream making fun of it. Yeah. And you got all those movies that are essentially like winking at the audience the entire time and isn't even an actual film at that point. You know, yeah. if you're winking at every single- Cabin st- in the fucking woods. <laughs> well, I love that one. But uh, aside from Cabin in the Woods, you got a lot of movies that if you, if you wink every step of the way, you're not making a movie anymore. Yeah. You're making the idea of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it turns out if you just say, the hell with it, I've always loved this genre, I take it seriously, and I'm going to try to do it for real, it turns out you can make a great movie mm-hmm. within this formula, you know? And Halloween too. I mean, there are little things I would do differently. There are casting decisions I don't think worked out that great and there's a few minutes and I think are too much but it is genuinely I think one of a kind I can't really think of another film that has the same place in the in the horror world as that movie well said now I feel uh I feel like kind of like I can't follow that when I bring up uh, Species 2. <laughs> but it's good. But I like Species it's 2. It's dope. There, there are great things in Species 2. First of all, the, the practical effects and the gore and stuff, there's, there's cool stuff in that regard. There's really shitty uh, CGI, which I really enjoy when it's on 35 millimeter. I, I think I remember... That's why you're a Mortal Kombat <laughs> Annihilation I fan. I, there's something about it. It just really does something for me like i remember when me and you we we had the amazing once in a lifetime kind of opportunity to see blade get played on a screen in 35 millimeter again we went to bam and we saw that a couple years ago thank god for blade blade day yeah blade day and i got to feel my favorite thing again which is bad cgi in 35 millimeter (laughs) oh my god there's something about it it's like a melting it doesn't get worse than blade cgi (laughs) It melts. God bless like, that movie, but those, yeah, those blood droplets, those those early <laughs> CGI blood droplets. There's something about the melding of the two worlds of early CG and like the I guess now, sadly, the last kind of like big hurrah of 35 millimeter. Those two worlds melding, it's just it does it for me, man. Well, because it's like hand tinted black and white, you know, it's like literally like a different right. world. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's inherently fantastic, which is why it can be laughed at super easily, but also why, like, if you're just in the mood for it, it's just, it has this sort of sparkly look and the, of something that's unreal in real life. The Blu-ray that was released of, uh, they put out Species 2, and then they did a double pack of Species 3 and Species 4. And Species 3 and Species 4... There are some nice things in Species 3. There's like maybe one nice thing. I never saw past the second one. You don't necessarily need to go past the second one, but uh, I don't know. There there are nice things that occur. I I won't lie. But anyway, the the Blu-ray of the second one, I get to see that 35 millimeter grain and I get to see my shitty CGI (laughs) and I'm a fucking happy boy. But uh, there's actually, there's a great... But does it, I mean, does it have uh, merits beyond that aspect I'm getting to the merit. Um, I really like there's this there's this great sequence in that second one where there's an abduction. There's like yeah. the the evil dude like abducts a woman at a supermarket. Dick move. It's one of the best scenes of abduction I've ever seen. Like short of like the Palma type <laughs> stuff, where it's like almost going the 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 route of like courtship and like the girls like into him. Mm, which I love. Freaky. I love is like the the inc- inciting like thing of of like, like an red eye. Yeah, like we're like I love. I've it, only ever seen the red eye trailer, but I love the movie <laughs> Red Eye. The trailer. Yeah, the the film itself not so much, but that fucking trailer was really good. Yeah, but it's one of my favorite movies. The trailer for Red Eye. I just love the idea of this alien dude in a supermarket as like a person, 
being well, that's, being uh, beautiful and like a lady being attracted to him and he just goes overboard and he abducts her and throws her into a van and it's a really well done sequence that's yeah. essentially under the skin i mean they made a whole movie of that sure yeah and it was great and species two did it first damn it yeah but uh yeah species but, I mean, two that's that's a scene that can carry an entire movie apparently sure a great film sure and that scene is uh it's very harrowing in like a way where you're not prepared for because you're sitting there you're watching species two you right. know you're not expecting you're not expecting the skuh part of skuh yeah <laughs> you just wanted the the uh yes but you got skuh yes and so you get surprised and it's a great moment and you know if you go in for the uhs and you get the skuhs <laughs> It hits you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because a lot of there's a lot of viewing of us in our lives. We uh, we, yeah, we're always looking for some unsung ones that have some some ska scenes in them, but aren't skas overall. Right, like the Fly Two. The actually both the Fly Twos, the 1950s Return of the Fly, and Mm. the 80s the Fly Two. Both are us that I wouldn't call skas, but have some ska scenes in them. Mm -hmm. You know. Like there's, there's that bit in the 80s fly too where there's like the fly dog monster that lives in the pit. That's a great scene. It's tremendous who does, stuff. Who doesn't want a fly dog monster? Yeah, but the rest of the movie's crap. But like, you know, it's a near miss for a school. Fair enough. School. <laughs> Along those lines, actually, it's no secret that I love paranormal activity for anybody who's listened to any of the 90 episodes of this. I will fucking cut you for paranormal activity if it came to it. Any of you. You like all of them, all the sequels, or? Well, that's, this is what I'm getting to. Okay. So right. it's no secret that I love Paranormal Activity. So much so that I've seen every single Paranormal Activity movie in theaters. All six of them. God damn. And that's an interesting experience. Because <laughs> you go through a lot. Uh, you go through Paranormal Activity 2, which was like the scud and all scuds when it came out. Like, I know people who didn't even like Paranormal Activity who saw the second one in theaters and were like, that's one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. Really? Unbelievable. I can't believe how good Paranormal Activity 2 is. PA2 blew my shit off. Holy fuck. And then it just sort of seems like everybody assumed maybe the Bride of Frankenstein thing. Like, all right, that's it. We got two good ones. No way we'll get a third. Lock it up. Uh, And then PA3 comes out, which is the one set in the 80s, which does not do a good job at all of feeling like the 80s. But aside from that aspect is actually one of the best movies in the series, probably the second best behind the first one. So if you can overlook the shitty done 80s. Which isn't even that shitty. It's just like not that good. Okay. Like it's the the sets and everything are fine. It's just they're shooting in HD. Mm. And I'm like, come on, guys. Yeah. Don't do that. But um, yeah, Paranormal Activity 3 turns out to be this like really relentless, really exciting, uh, really fast, scary movie. Uh. And you can see what's happening already. You know, you can see the, the, the inevitable soil erosion of like, you can't do paranormal activity more than once. You can't have that level of like brooding, waiting terror. You know, it, you just can't have that more than once. So you can see, you know, the, the shoreline of mediocrity starting to lap away at the, the rocks. And like the second one's really good, but... Um, it's, it feels a little too like they're building a universe at times for me. You know, it has a little too much of like, like a, like a framework behind it. That's well, a little too Well, you're not visible. a, uh, you're notorious as not a world building fan and a, f- a world, a franchise building fan. Yes. I don't believe yeah. in franchises in that sense. Yeah. Uh, and the third one doesn't really do as much of that. Uh, at least not at the time in retrospect, it really did, but it does this this separate sort of conventional thing where it's just like, fuck it, we can't be the first one, so we're going to be a run-and-gun, relentless scare machine. And all three of them are really good, but you can see the goals, like, lessening as they go, you know? And even though they retain this, like, quality there, you, you can just see the scope narrow. Mm. Uh, and then the fourth one came out, and it is bad. Paranormal Activity 4 is bad. Uh, that's the one where it's like a 15 year old girl and you're watching it all through her webcam. And you're also like, I never got past the whole, like, I don't feel good about that part of it. 
You know, like it was a tough sell right. to begin yeah. with. It seems like a entrapment, like as far as like the people that show up to the theater for that, they can just round those dudes up and just put them in a van and take them right to the police station. Well, you just have like, <laughs> like a lot of trust in the filmmakers yeah. that they're going to like keep it together <laughs> when they do that. It, it reminds me of, uh, I remember I went to see some movie. I forget what the actual movie I was seeing was, but it came out right at the exact same time as uh, Being Elmo. And this was before all that craziness went down where we found out how horrible that dude actually was. This was, yeah. this was pre that. So I was going to some movie with my mom and I swear to you, in front of us was a row of like 30, 40 year old <laughs> skeevy looking dudes by themselves, all going up to the ticket booth saying, one for, uh, one for being on. <laughs> I swear to you. And that tipped me out. I was like, there's something going on here. It's like either like they get off on like, uh, you know, watching this dude do that voice or they... Who doesn't, man? Or something. But then later on, I realized, oh, they have like, if there's gaydar, there's like peddar. So they have the peddar and they were like, this guy's one of us or something. I don't know what it was, but I swear to you... They might have peddar. I think peddar is a thing. And I yeah. think uh, the peds got the peddar and, and that's why they went and saw the movie. But digression. <laughs> anyway, back to it. Yeah. So yeah, four was just terrible. Uh, it, it, it didn't have anything going for it. Uh, and at that point, you were like, "All right, you know, like whatever was the engine behind this doesn't really work anymore." But they're going to keep making more, so you know, we'll see what they do. And then they came out with this other one that was like a side movie, which is bullshit. It's Paranormal Activity Five. <laughs> Paranormal Activity: The Ghost Dimension is Paranormal Activity Five. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And it's like about uh, this young Latino kid who the witch from the movie like moves to the uh, apartment below him and he like starts to figure it out. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because just the change of venue and the change of like protagonist from very rich California white person to like a young Latino kid like in L.A. the city really freshens it up. Uh, yeah, that is a good uh tactic because if you realize if you stop and think about it you're like wait wait a second like the thing we're doing again and again is is a socioeconomic thing essentially yeah. yeah because that first movie so much of it is wrapped up in the housing crisis that was about to come the year after it was made you know yeah. so much of it was this you know this looming sense that you have too much house and you have too much debt and you just have you have too much and sooner or later there's going to be a reckoning on it which is part of why I love the first Paranormal Activity so much. I think it came perfectly at this time. It was a 2007 film, you know, and really it's about these people who are trapped in this house that's killing them and they can't get out of it. And all these shots are just these huge panoramas really showing off the scale and the size of all these rooms they don't need mm. and these rooms they don't use. Uh, and it's just a really timely, fascinating kind of horror movie to make. So Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, which is really five, it freshens the premise by just moving it, which more horror movies should do, not to fucking space, just like move them right, to like a different to, neighborhood. You don't need to put a leprechaun in space. You just need to put the leprechaun in the hood, which- Right, exactly. They did. They knew. Specifically, leprechaun back to the hood, I think is the better of the leprechaun in the hood movies. It's fair. Back to the Hood is, is I think, the best one since the first one of the Leprechauns and did the exact same thing. Like you said, yeah. just brought it uh, brought it to the Hood, you know? Because it's just a different energy. Like, you, you have different relationships to space. Yeah. You know, like, it's no longer, like, two people in a big house. It's, it's uh, you start to hear the sounds of other people in other apartments and you start to be able to play with that. Mm. And, like, the radiator that you can hear other apartments from and you just have like a whole different canvas to play with. Well, that's like with uh, Candyman towards the beginning of Candyman, where they have to yeah. go to the project building to check out like the scary yeah, it just stuff. Feels very different. In in just any other movie, it would be they go to some haunted house and there's nobody around and they're looking around with their flashlights and then they discover something. With Candyman, they're going into a building full of people. You know, there are people walking around and they're scared of the people as they're going yeah. into the building. And yeah. there's apartments next door to where they're going and it's scary in other ways. So it really does freshen it. Yeah. And it, it really is. Um, 
it's just a good trick. Yeah. You know, it's just really good for everybody involved. So it's not, you know, paranormal activity. It's, it's a fairly prosaic, uh, witch movie, but you know, by that, by that metric, it's fun. It's good. It's creepy. Uh, and then there's the fifth one, which is really the sixth one. They get into that point where they're like the Italian movies. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's Dawn of the Dead and all that all yeah. over again. And that one's kind of fun because it's like straight up, like they've given up the pretense of making a genuinely scary movie at that point. And if you can get over the resentment of them not doing it, it's okay because they have a lot of fun with it. You, the, This is the one, it was the 3D movie, but it was not in 3D. What happened was... All of the people and everything and all the footage is in 2D, but all the stuff with the ghosts, the ghosts are in 3D. Mm. Well, that's what I think Ghostbusters did, uh, uh, sort of. Really? They took it from Paranormal Activity? Yeah. And not just the ghosts themselves, but like cold spots in the room. Mm. You know, there's, it's actually really cool. It's the best part of the movie. There's just this spot that they get this like weird vibe about. They don't like standing in. So what happens is they find a haunted camcorder. It's the camcorder from the third movie. Yeah. So they're fucking around with it and they turn it on and they're, they're playing, uh, they're recording. And when they turn the camera to this spot, there's just this like weird thing that they don't quite know what it is, but because we have the 3d glasses on, it's just this glowing 3d like shimmer. That's really cool. And I don't know how it looks, if it looks like anything when you watch it in 2D. That'd be interesting to see, yeah. Uh, it's probably total shit in 2D. But just the, the the image of them turning and you seeing something shimmering in 3D mm. in a two-dimensional movie was really an interesting experience in theaters. It was a good, it was a really fun theater experience, that movie. It made me think, it made me wonder what... You know, when Guillermo del Toro wanted to do uh, At the Mountains of Madness and he wanted to do it in 3D, but like non-Euclidean 3D. Right, right. He wanted to play with, he wanted to have the 3D be inaccurate to the visuals um, so that you had this sense of like non-Euclidean geometry, things not being where they look to you, where they are in the room, you know, this sort of optical illusion. It's the only time I've ever seen anybody do something like that is um, Paranormal Activity 5 slash 6. Uh, it's really cool. And like, it, you know, it, it comes apart at the end. It's such a goofy movie. <laughs> it's not scary at all. It's very silly, but there's some images in it that just as, as moments of cinema are really like, it's good to have them. Yeah. It's great to see, uh, the, the sixth point in a, in a franchise, which, you know, they're calling it five or I guess, Yeah. but it's a great to see that it's still able to do some, uh, some fresh things. That's always nice. All right, we should uh, we should probably wrap it up here, but um, we want to hear yours, so please hashtag it, and maybe we'll even do a follow up if we get sent a bunch of really good ones yeah. to check out. Surprise and us! I'm, also, here's some ones we knocked off the list because we didn't like that well. Okay, uh, Texas Chainsaw Two, right? right? Which does interesting things, but I don't like as a film. Yeah, Psycho Two and Three, meh, and um, Exorcist Three, not because we didn't like it. But because oh, I didn't like it, I liked it, but yeah. I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it personally because I think people know with that one now. Yeah, that's, like it doesn't feel. It's it, got its group of people. Yeah, it's it's not a uh, it's not us anymore. And once again, let's stress this: these need to be capital U because yeah. if these are, if these are sung, I'm gonna put you on blast. I'm yeah. coming at you. No, no, no singing. Yeah. Unsung. If you give us like Evil Dead Two. We're gonna put you on blast. Yep, absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna launch our, our Twitter army in your direction. You're gonna you're gonna yeah. have to delete your account or something. I don't know. But yes, please uh, please do the uh, hashtagging and uh, send us your skugs, and uh, we'll uh, feature them on an upcoming episode, perhaps. And also, you can always leave us a voicemail: seven eight three nine five nine seven one one. And uh, you can or leave alternate number nine one one. Yeah, you can leave them for us on there. Nine one one is probably the best way to reach us, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Uh, so thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>